Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. Oh, hello, Stuart. I, I didn't know you were here. Uh, this is this is an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Oh, thank goodness I'm on the right one. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my two co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, who interrupted me several times already, and, right. and Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul? Hi. How's it going, guys? <laughs> It is a radio show, Paul, so people, uh, they need to hear your voice. Not so much. <laughs> hey, Paul. Uh, Paul, did you have a pick of the week? What, what, whatever, whatever happened to the segue? The segue's gone. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and flawless. Should I be pausing for the music? What's happening? The, it's, it's already played, Paul. You're good to Great, go. Great, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to hearing it at some point. So... I think I'm going to pull a steward and recommend something I, I haven't had a chance to look at yet, but I am deeply excited for the 2017 ACC, AHA, AAPA, ABC, ACPM, AGS, APHA, ASH, ASPC, NMA, PACNA guideline for the prevention, follow this one. detection, evaluation, and management of high blood pressure in adults. Um, it is the, the new blood pressure guidelines that were released pretty darn recently. So recently, I only know there's 195 pages. I've not really looked at them. I'm pretty sure Less I'll agree with all of them. 130 <laughs> so, over 80 treat. If, a, if the ASCVD is greater than 10%. Don't you dare ruin this for me. Um, okay. I'm, yeah, no, I'm very much looking forward to, to reading that. So In a bubble bath. Oh, sure. Yeah, maybe <laughs> just a glass of Chardonnay. Just really some me time. Wow, Paul. Thank you for it's that breaking news. Is this, this is going to be called JNC9 or... Not not JNC nine. No no no. It's all the acronyms he put together. Then nine. Ah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Oh, if not that, then did I recommend Bone Tomahawk already? No, I may have. May, I have yeah, that one. I don't know. I think we forgot. Oh, well, recommend it again. Yeah, so we've only done seventy some episodes. And I've already forgotten what I've recommended already. <laughs> but it's a <laughs> 2015 uh, Western movie. Uh, starring Kurt Russell because by law he has to star in all westerns after I think 1997. <laughs> um, but a great cast: Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, and it has Richard Jenkins in it. So it's just, and it's this. The first half is this almost traditional western that's sort of quiet and meditative, and there's a lot of good character building. And then the second half just goes bonkers as they, um, the protagonists, encounter these cannibalistic troglodytes, and there's just one incredibly jarring, upsetting, visceral scene that kind of sets everything off. Um, so. Don't watch it if you're squeamish, but if you like horror movies and like westerns, then it is the movie for you. And that would be the movie Bone, Tomahawk, or Read Yourself Some Blood Pressure Guidelines. I don't care. <laughs> did you almost eat the mic when you said bone? I think you did. <laughs> Stuart, did you want right. to go next or do you want me to go? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go next. So my pick of the week is actually a Twitter feed only because of the amazing drawings that she makes for us. It's at KatePaint42, K-A-T-E-P-A-I-N-T-4-2. So her her recent more comical drawings are just just excellent. Especially the there, there's a recent one where she was poking fun at, at Tolkien. It's <laughs> it, it, it's really cool. I I really like like her pencil drawings. Highly recommend them. I I feel like she's your like long lost sister or something. You you seem to have a very similar sense of humor. Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Anyway, uh, I will give my pick of the week, which is a book called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. And this is inspired by our recent discussion of Stoic philosophy with Scott Weingart. 
this Ryan Holiday has written a bunch of books on stoicism and ego. He is a modern writer. I think he's younger than me. I think he's only 32 or 33, but he's written about six books. So highly accomplished compared to me. And he, uh, he does a great job of kind of modernizing and making these sort of complex topics accessible. He brings in a lot of examples from history about how ego ruined people and also about how people not letting their ego get the best of them made them very successful. And I think it's a, it's a great thing to do in this social media driven society where everyone's worried about likes and tweets and followers. And, uh, you know, for me, I think it's especially important right now. So it's Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Stuart, did you want to set up the episode here? Um, no, you can do it. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay. It's only uh, social media's greatest physician voice that we have on. Thank you. And that would be Dr. Kevin Poe of KevinMD.com. He is a board-certified internal medicine physician and the founder of KevinMD.com. He has been named the, wor- the web's top social media influencer in healthcare and medicine. The New York Times called Kevin MD a highly coveted publishing place for doctors and patients. Forbes called Kevin MD a must-read health blog and CNN named at Kevin MD one of its five recommended Twitter health feeds. He is also the co-author of the book, Establishing, Managing, and Practicing Your Online Reputation, A Social Media Guide for Physicians and Medical Practices. Transforming his social media presence into a mainstream media voice, he has been interviewed on the CVS Evening News with Katie Couric, and his commentary regularly appears in USA Today, where he is a member of their editorial board of contributors, as well as CNN and the New York Times. Kevin MD is, as we said, an online medical blog with thousands of contributors from across the spectrum uh, within healthcare. On this episode, speaking with Dr. Kevin Poe, we talk about use of social media, we talk about some of the dangers of social media, but also how you can use it to your benefit as a physician. We also get into electronic health records, have they made things better, have they made things worse. We talk about primary care and the integration of advanced practice providers, a little bit about health policy and health advocacy. It's a wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Kevin Poe, and I hope you find it as valuable as we did. With us tonight, we are very proud to have Dr. Kevin Poe of KevinMD.com. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Yes, we've been, we've been wanting to talk to you for quite a while here. And as I explained to you just a few moments ago, before we got, kind of get into talking about doctors, social media, we just want the audience to get to know you first. So it, let's say they haven't heard of you. How would you describe yourself in a one-liner? Sure. My name is Kevin Poe. I'm an internal medicine physician. I practice primary care in Nashua, New Hampshire. I'm the founder and editor of KevinMD.com, which is social media's leading physician voice. I share the stories of the many who intersect with our healthcare system but are rarely heard from. And something that maybe the audience hasn't heard about you, let's say that they're familiar and they're already reading, what sort of stuff are you doing? What hobbies or habits, things like that, do you have outside of the medical world? 
Well, I'm raising two young daughters, so that pretty much uh, <laughs> takes up uh, a lot of my time. They're 8 and 12, so shuttling to and from school and various sports and music activities. Um, and uh, between that and the blog and and uh, going around the country and speaking and sharing my story, uh, that pretty much takes up uh, uh, 100% of my time. <laughs> oh, by the way, doing uh, four days of primary care. So that's pretty much my life. Oof. Yeah. I I was I, when I was researching you for this talk I was like oh he probably sees like two patients a week or something like so you're actually you're yeah, still doing you're still doing four four sessions a week or four days a week of primary care That's right I am uh 0.75 FTE so I see patients <laughs> yeah. uh, uh Monday through Thursday morning uh in my it. clinic how, how many patients a day are you seeing I see about 15 to 20 patients a day Okay Wow. I I mean, I guess to put it in perspective, I think someone who's a medical director of a practice tends to be like a 0.5 FTEs where they're doing 50% yeah. of their time as administration and 50% of their time seeing patients. So is that correct, Kevin? Is that, am I explaining it okay? Nope, that sounds about right. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's great. All right. So sorry for the digression. Paul Stewart, what did you want to ask him? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and let Paul go first. Oh, I, I think I'll ask my usual question, except I, I'm feeling bold. I'll ask you, what is a book that you would recommend most physicians should read? Ooh. So, rather than a book, I'm going to oh. kind of divert a little bit. <laughs> question um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time so, to retire it. I think that, um, <laughs> I think a lot of doctors, uh, especially the ones that I, you know, ones I talk to and uh, a lot of doctors who write on my site, I think they need to be more versed on the healthcare conversation. So mm -hmm. I do recommend a couple of um, blogs that they should read um, to get versed on the, the various topics that are out there. So um, I really like Vox. Um, I think Vox is, 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 a, is a good primer. It does have a uh, progressive bias. So I think it's important to get health policy from across the political spectrum. Um, so that also means reading um, all the columnists at the New York Times, both the progressive and conservative ones. And I also recommend the upshot at the New York Times as well. So those are really uh, my my recommendations that every physician should read to really be up to date on um, on the various health policy topics out there. So you, so you think that each physician should understand health policy at the granular level? Well, I think they should know it at least on the 101 level. Um, I think the more versed, the more conversant that they are when you're talking about mm -hmm. health policy and healthcare reform, um, the better um, a chance that they're going to be taken seriously whenever they right. they speak out and write. And I think uh, we're going to get into this later, but I think it's important for physicians to to have that voice because our healthcare system is changing a lot of times without physician input. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually recently had a, I suppose it's called a Twitter bait when you debate on someone with someone on Twitter about the importance <laughs> of understanding. absolutely certain that's what that means. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I certainly hope so uh, about the importance to understand healthcare policy from the physician perspective. But I, I, I digress. That was not my question. My question was, uh, what is the best advice you've ever received that's helped you stay true to yourself and embrace your role as a physician? So I think the best advice that um, I've heard was that you can't um, you can't have all your eggs in one basket. So I think that you need to have uh, another passion, um, not only within medicine, but a passion outside of medicine um, as well. Because I think with the way, um, especially primary care is going, I think that if all we had was clinical medicine, I think that's going to be a precursor to burnout. So I think it's important to 
have a passion, um, you know, it could be your family, it could be your kids. For me, of course, it's what I do with social media, my blog, and um, I think that complements my passion with uh, clinical medicine. And I think if you have those parallel tracks, that's really going to be a way to help you to uh, to um, to prevent from from burning out. Uh, because I think if all you do is see patients uh, and just go home and, and then that's it, um, that's really a surefire way to get burnt out. Mm. And do you still enjoy your time in clinic? I do. I think uh, if I were to do it full-time or 1.0 FTE, um, I would probably enjoy it less. So I think uh, doing what I do outside of the clinic and seeing patients, uh, 15 to 20 patients a day for three and a half days a week, I think that's a nice blend for me. And that combined with my family, I think that keeps me going. And it uh, it does recharge me uh, whenever mm-hmm. at the end of the week. Now, n- not all physicians have that opportunity to kind of backtrack and uh, only fulfill uh, less than 1.0 FTE. How how would you recommend that a physician try to take the steps in the direction so that they can try to provide more of that margin within their personal and professional lives in order to, to find that, f- that fulfillment? I think being a physician, you don't necessarily, um, you're not necessarily just in a box of, of just doing clinical medicine. I think having that MD degree opens up a lot of doors outside of clinical practice. Um, so I don't think it should be all one or the other. You shouldn't be all seeing patients or should be all not seeing patients. I think Mm -hmm. that having that degree opens up a lot of avenues. It, It certainly did for me. Um, you know, speaking about, about social media, of course, and being an MD and that, gives me a certain amount of credibility whenever I talk to physicians and physician organizations. And it's just opened up so many doors uh, outside of primary care medicine that I wouldn't have thought of when I was training. Okay. So, Kevin, if you would, let's imagine that that we have a a young physician, not unlike myself or Matt or Paul, who's uh, recently graduated from residency. And, you know, we've always been told to avoid these, these platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. And we stumble across your site, I read up on you and basically it, it sounds like you're telling us as young physicians to utilize these these tools how would you recommend that we that we utilize them to is it for networking is it for for learning what is it exactly that that you want these young physicians to know about social media so whenever I talk to young physicians, uh, they always hear about social media from a perspective of risk right mm-hmm. uh, you always hear about the doctors because they're getting fired because they're posting. Um, you know, pictures from the OR or, you know, pictures from the ER that they saw and put it all over Instagram and then they get fired or get, you know, front page headlines in the newspaper. And a lot of doctors I talk to about social media, you know, they say, why do I need to get into it? I don't need to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So whenever I share my story and talk to other physicians, I always want to share social media from a more positive perspective. And I think that there are three main ways that we can use social media in a more positive manner. So the first way is to really connect with and educate patients because more patients than ever are going online. I think the most recent numbers are seven out of 10 internet users are using the internet for healthcare information. And along with that territory, there's a lot of bad information and pseudoscience online as well. So I think Mm -hmm. that it's important for us to also get on social media to really propagate and create that reputable health content. So that's uh, number one. Number two, patients are also Googling their doctors online. So um, by using social media platforms, it's a way for us to proactively define our digital footprint. So rather than being defined by, you know, health grades, vitals, rate MDs, and Yelp, and, and these physician review sites, uh, you know, we can have a blog, we can have a Facebook page, we can have a YouTube channel, and that really gives us control about how we're presented mm-hmm. online. 
And then the third piece, of course, is that physician advocacy piece. And I think that resonates especially with young physicians. Um, they always right. ask me, you know, how can I make a difference? And I think that's a, one, one of the most powerful ways that we can make a difference is by really um, you know, whether it's through video or through through blogs or using social media as a springboard to mainstream media, I think that is one of the most powerful ways that physicians can use social media and really be involved in, in the healthcare conversation around us. So those are really the three big ways that young physicians should optimize um, social media. Um, and as to you know, what specific platforms they should use, you know, certainly we can go more granular in that, but they need to decide why they want to get into social media. So I just gave you three major reasons. So I think that once they decide why they want to go into it, then we could determine which platforms fit those goals. And I wanted to say that uh, in the past year, and or I guess almost two years now doing doing the show, a lot of the times when I would be researching guests or trying to find them, a lot of doctors have no social media footprint. Like some of them don't even have LinkedIn they're, they're not on Facebook. If you Google search them, all that really comes up is like the health grades and things like that, right. where they have virtually no control over what, what people are saying about them on there. And when I was looking for jobs uh, in this uh, past six months here, I, was, I, would, I would try to look up the people that I was interviewing with. And a lot of them, unless their university had put a faculty profile on there, a lot of them had almost no footprint at all. And I think when they are going out there looking for jobs, I mean, for me as the candidate, I have all this stuff that I've been putting out there for the past two years that I'm proud of. And it seemed like it was a very uh, beneficial to me looking for jobs that people ahead of time were able to look me up. But I, I, I was just shocked at how few people had things on social media. And I think it's because people are afraid of it. No, it, I, that you're right. You're absolutely right. I think that there is a, uh, a fear factor. I think there are a lot of, and I think also there's a generational factor too. I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of physicians who do not grow up on the internet and they're a little bit fearful in terms of dipping their toes online. You mentioned specifically LinkedIn. You know, I think that's a great way to, to at least start, um, you know, just build a LinkedIn profile, which is really just a digital translation of your CV. Um, I like Doximity as well. Doximity also yeah. shows up pretty high and just starting there, I think would be a good step for most physicians. And then whether they want to move forward, it really depends on on what their goals are, whether it's uh, educating patients or connecting with colleagues or advocating for a cause, they can go gradually in. But uh, I don't advocate physicians to use social media to the extent I do. You don't have to <laughs> use a million platforms at once, but start slow. Just dip your toe in. Just be comfortable with just being Googled and being in control of that information. And, and as you get more comfortable, then you could incrementally uh, increase your presence uh, based on your comfort level. So what what real risks are there for for physicians and maybe you can give an example of a way that 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 physicians sh should be maybe some one that people don't isn't so obvious to people that they need to look out for what like is patients recognizing him in clinic <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think that these days patients they Google their doctors, and a lot of times when they when they come see me for the first time, they know more about me than than I, I do <laughs> them. So it's very true. A lot of patients they will Google you uh, online, and a lot of doctors. You know, there are some doctors who say, you know, I don't even, you know, why do I want an online presence? And I always say back, you know, you have one whether you want one or not. Right. 
mention things like health grades and and all these third-party sites. They use publicly available information, and they already build a profile of you regardless of whether you want one or not. So I think it's really uh, important for every physician at least to to have some semblance of control because um, if they don't control their online presence, it's going to be done for them through these you know third-party physician rating sites. So you asked about the uh, biggest mistake. Um, you know, I think the obvious one would be things like revealing patient privacy. Um, that's mm-hmm. hear so many uh, stories about doctors um, posting things without proper patient consent. I think that if there's any doubt in terms of patient privacy, just simply ask the patient for written consent. And I think that's really the safest way. Um, but then I have what I call the elevator test. Um, whatever you post online needs to be appropriate if you say it aloud in a crowded hospital elevator. So I think uh, that rule of thumb really should keep a lot of doctors out of trouble. And I think a more recent, a more recent issue um, is really, uh, I think, political. I think uh, you know a lot of doctors have strong, just like everyone else, they have strong political opinions. And um, you know, when it comes to healthcare reform, when it comes to um, you know which side that they're on, uh, which side of the political aisle they're on, and you know, and you know, if you go on Twitter and get into these heated debates, um, you know, this is all searchable publicly, and mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. that can turn off uh, some patients as well. So that's some one of the more recent, um, um, I guess, I wouldn't call it a danger, but you know, I think one of the more recent concerns that uh, I think physicians are facing in today's political climate as well. Stuart, those are called uh, Twitter baits. Is that what you, t- is that what I, you told us? I, I, do, I do think so. <laughs> I don't like this. Uh, and, and yeah, Kevin, you brought, you brought up the point about patient people on Twitter really giving, giving their political opinions and things like that. And I, I, I'm always fairly shocked sometimes at, uh, and we talked about this with uh, a recent guest about swearing. I, I think it's it's interesting. You'll you'll see physicians, their public profiles, and some of them can get away with it, swearing and and really giving their political views. And personally, I think I'm too much of a wimp to do that. I just I I feel like if my patients saw me online saying my political views and and using language that I wouldn't use in a crowded elevator, then, you know, I worry about that. But that's my personal style. And I think some of the people that are doing those things are are not really having bad repercussions. So I think you just have to own it really well if you're going to do it. Yeah. And just as an aside, I actually think Twitter is, is really not a good good forum for debate because, um, well, now you have, what, 200-something characters <laughs> yeah. now. So, um, you know, I think it's very difficult to articulate a point of view, uh, articulate a nuanced point of view in, right. in, in so few words. So, I think very little gets done um, when you're talking about, especially with politics uh, on Twitter. So, I, I prefer to articulate my views. You know, I like long, longer form blog posts. So at least you could put all your views at once. You could explain a nuance. Um, I think very little gets accomplished when you're arguing back and forth on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I think it just escalates the the, the polarity of each side. Um, I think actually Twitter is a good way to really keep up with health information. So yeah. if you follow uh, a reputable list of, of people and, and uh, go to the links that they share, you know, I think it's a good way to curate information. Uh, but I think it's less useful when it comes to arguing and, and getting into debate with um, people that you don't agree with because invariably it, it always escalates. You're never going to see two sides come together on, you know, <laughs> kumbaya, kumbaya on Twitter. That, that's very rare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure... <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. You you mentioned Twitter, and that that's how I actually he- first heard about your site, and and first actually so that was my first probably dip into reading about health policy and starting to get interested in it because I think 
the, a lot of the yourself and a lot of contributors to your site do a great job at at just posting interesting points of views. Can you talk a little bit about advocacy and when you started the site? Is that how you had intended it to be, or did it just sort of become this place where physicians are advocating their positions and uh, sharing it with the world? So it was definitely not planned. Uh, when I started this back in the early 2000s, I really had no idea where the direction was. Um, I think I first saw it as more a tool for patient education rather than educating patients one-on-one in the exam room. Now with social media, we have a platform where we can educate many patients at once. Um, then it evolved to a place where you can curate information, where you can correct pseudoscience online. Mm-hmm. I think the physician advocacy pace certainly came later on, I would say, you know, five to 10 years into the site. Um, you know, and there's no coincidence, you know, we've had the Affordable Care Act since then. We've had multiple attempts at repeal and replace. We've had, you know, going both sides. And I think with all these decisions, the, the voice of the physician was missing. So, that advocacy piece, I think, grew in importance, and I think it's now, you know, among the most important reasons why I do what I do. So I think it's important for physicians not only to speak out, but I think um, they need to speak out across the political spectrum. Uh, me personally, um, I'm pretty moderate in my views. So I, you know, I always say when I am in my talks, when it comes to our healthcare system, I think we need progressive and conservative ideas to solve our healthcare system because the problems in our healthcare system are really bit too big for one single ideology to solve it. And I think we need ideas from both sides of the aisle. And, you know, that may be a little bit naive in today's mm. political climate, but I, I, I sincerely believe that. So I think that reflects in the, the viewpoints that I I choose. You know, I certainly choose a lot of progressive voices, but I also choose a, a, a variety of conservative voices to, to, to counteract that. Um, I always get fire from both sides of the political aisle, and that tells me that, hey, you know, I'm in a good place because if I'm getting fire from both sides, that's exactly where I want to be. So, you know, I, I'm not perfect, but that's, that's really my goal is to really represent both views because I think when it comes to um, solving these problems, um, we do need ideas from both sides of the political aisle. You ever thought about a career in politics? No, not with uh, two kids at home. So I'm, I'm good. <laughs> You'd have to go down to like 0.25 FTEs right, yeah. if you were going to do that. that. Might get busy, <laughs> it's way too pragmatic. I was going to make a comment on that, but that's okay. Um, yeah. The, hold on. Uh, Matt, did you have any other questions about that specifically? I think since you brought up the recent political climate, where what do you think is going to be the next big thing here and or do you have any comments that you'd like to make on the whole repeal and replace or where where this might go next So I think that we as a country we need to decide whether you know I'm not going to say whether healthcare is right okay because that is instantly polarizing language <laughs> but I do think that we need to decide whether um you know, whether we can agree on whether universal coverage should be a government obligation. Um, You always look at other countries, you know, the left always likes to point towards, you know, Europe and Canada. But in those societies, close to 90 to 95% believe that there should be some form of universal coverage. If you look at the recent polls here in the United States, things like universal coverage or whether healthcare is right, at most polls at 60%. So we as a society, it's almost... 50-50, 60-40, determining whether even healthcare should be a government obligation or not. And until we get past that question as a society, then, um, you know, I think nothing really gets answered. 
Um, you know, you have questions like things like single payer and all that, but we can't even decide whether healthcare is a right or not, or whether, um, you know, the government is obligated to provide health insurance. And if we can't even answer that question as a society, then it's very difficult to go beyond that. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely the million dollar question or a billion. I don't know. What's a big number these days? Trillion dollar question? <laughs> Quintillion. <laughs> Septillion. And anyways. Yeah. Um, we, we recently tried to do a couple episodes on that. And I think we're going to be, I think that's something we're going to be doing more of just kind of uh, similar to what you do on your site, just having a, a mix of voices on air talking about this because I, I think of myself as more kind of, I'm just trying to learn from, from both sides on things. I'm probably more towards the middle and, and it's, it's an interesting thing and there's, there's so much to learn about it. And it's, uh, as we've talked about on previous episodes, I personally have been very intimidated by all the terminology and health policy. I get very confused. Everybody's telling me their side is better. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So there's, there's a lot of learning and discussion to be had on, on that topic. I was going to say, I, I just think that it, it's unfortunate if you're unable to listen to a differing viewpoint and, and at least pull out some of the, the, the uh, weaknesses of your own um, uh, viewpoint, because there's always going to be pros and cons to no matter what viewpoint that you're approaching the issue from. And unless you're able to, um, with a grain of wisdom, take a look at, at your own fallacies, your, your own argumentative fallacies, you'll never get past your own face. No, I think that's very well put. Um, I think that um, the, the art of nuance is definitely um, a fading art, especially in today's uh, society. And I actually do think social media has a lot to do with that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, social media, especially Facebook specifically, because everyone is in their own echo chambers. Right. Um, the way the Facebook algorithm works, um, if you're a conservative, um, then you're only going to listen and like conservative viewpoints. Or if you're progressive, you're right. only going to like progressive viewpoints. And that really triggers Facebook to only share those viewpoints with you. So I think it's very difficult to um, to get viewpoints from outside your political sphere and outside your bubble. So that's why it's imperative. I, I talk to a lot of medical students and I say, you know, you have to, and, you know, medical students on the whole tend to be more progressive than, 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 than people who've out of, um, you know, people who are out of yeah. residence. You know, right. I think, I think, I think there was a, there was a, there was a Gomer blog article about that. Yeah. So. It was like, it was like uh resident graduates attending its <laughs> oh, yeah. first, uh, get, get, gets first paycheck and became, becomes a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, they, they do tend to be, you know, you know healthcare, the right or pro single payer, but, you know, I do encourage them to, to read more conservative viewpoints mm-hmm. because I do think that, you know, single payer, that there are other ways to achieve universal coverage outside of single payer. You know, there are other countries like like Germany yeah. and Switzerland that also have universal coverage without single payer. So I try to, um, you know, let them know you have to read, you know, David Brooks, you have to read Ross Doudat, you got to read these other um, conservative viewpoints on the New York Times. You know, you can't just, you know, be, be uh, read one side of the political aisle. So I think it's really important to to read opinions that you may not be comfortable with. We had a couple so, more topics, Stuart, that you wanted to kind of delve into a little bit. Yeah. Um, so briefly, I just want to talk about electronic health records and kind of the bane that uh, plagues us all here. At least this is the way that I look at it. You once said, and I think this is 2014, you said that electronic health records are generally antiquated programs that are cumbersome to use that interfere with face-to-face interaction. So 
what does the evidence actually say about, about electronic health records? Is this true? Does this pan out that in general, uh, they seem to interfere with our, our ability to connect with patients? But they're electronic. Yeah. How could they be an- antiquated? <laughs> I always say that electronic medical records, they're kind of like the Windows 95 of, 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 <laughs> of programs right now. You know, I think that right now we're, we're, you know, we're with like, iOS, you know, iOS 11, and you know, but I think EMRs like they're back in Windows 95. In contrast to that, <laughs> so I think there was a study in the the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine. It said for every hour we spend with patients, we spend another two hours on a computer doing charts on <laughs> on the electronic medical records. Um, yeah. Another study showed that only a quarter of our time is spent face-to-face with patients. And these two factors directly lead to things like physician burnout and the mm-hmm. frustration. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about how difficult it is to be. I honestly believe this. I, I think that it's impossible to be a full-time 1.0 FTE primary care physician with all we have to do. Um, so, you know, I, I can't even imagine those doctors who see 30, 40 play patients a day and, you know, have to deal with the electronic medical records. You know, that's like a surefire way to, <laughs> to burn. No wonder they're miserable, right? So, you know, you have to have it a balance. So to answer your question, I think that's, that's really the data, I think. And then wasn't there a study about residents? They only spend like, you know, 10, you know, 90, spend like whatever. I don't know what the number is, 70, 80% of their time in front of a computer rather than like at bedside. So I think that if you look at these, these numbers, I think our time is just skewed completely in front of a computer. And um, they haven't really integrated it adequately into the workflow um, the user interfaces tend to be very clumsy. Um, a lot of patients are complaining because, uh, you know, doctors are bringing laptops in the room and all they're doing is like typing while the patient's talking to them. So it's this third entity in the room that's really impeding um, um, the doctor-patient relationship. And we, so far, we haven't really found a good way to, uh, to, um, to rectify that. Yeah, there. Because that's the question. You want to be careful not to romanticize the days of paper charts too, too much because I'm <laughs> old enough to remember you know, having these book bookshelves that you actually had a hand crank to move to pull out this paper chart that was just illegible. You had no idea what happened. Like you're digging the, the old labs are in a basement someplace in Arizona that will be incinerated in 11 years. So it's, so I, I agree that EHR is cumbersome, but I, I just, I, I often, I get a little bit concerned when I, when I, I feel like people get sort of misty eyed for the days of old when you could just scribble garbage on a prescription pad and then <laughs> write a couple of big circles on a piece of paper. Cause I just, I, that's not the answer either. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. We you know, I think that, you know, you talk about things like scribes, you know, a lot of doctors, you know, they have scribes that, that does, you know, again, you talk about the third wheel in a room, you know, that can ameliorate some of the problem, but you know, what does that say about electronic records? You know, we're, we're talking about, right. you know, an industry where it's supposed to, you know, make things more efficient, but then you're just, you know, you're adding more people, adding more costs, right? It's the only, <laughs> only industry that does that, right? So I think something that needs to be done. I think there's a really no incentive from the electronic medical record uh, vendor's standpoint to really improve their user interfaces because they got all their money from the government yeah. already, right? They're, <laughs> right. They're, they're, they, they're, there's no incentive for them to, to work with physicians, and, um, and that's, that's really a shame. Kevin, I was going to ask you. You're we're talking about the electronic health record being integrated, and this is a question I've wanted to ask on the show. I don't think we've asked it before. How how do you work charting into your day? When let's say you're a full day in clinic, when when do you do your charting? Is it when the patient's in the room? How, how do you handle that? So there are different styles. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier there are a lot of doctors who bring their computer in a room and then as the uh, patient's talking, they'll fill out their HPI, uh, the history of present illness section right. of the note. And then that's why they get a new complaint. Unless you're very skilled or 
you know, you can talk to the patient while typing at the same time. You know, I think uh, uh, it's very difficult. Personally, I don't bring computer in room anymore, so I I like to talk to the patient face to face. I can jot down a few notes, and um, I have to admit, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time with patients. I freely admit that you know, I'm pretty you know to the point uh, when it comes to the patient mm-hmm. visit, and um, that gives me a little bit of time at the end of the visit to 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 do the the charting either at the end or if I have like a little bit of lull during the day. Or if a, if the patient no shows, it gives you some time to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after the kids are asleep, I do my charting at night. Uh, but I, I try not to bring a computer in a room anymore because I really do believe it does interfere with that connection. Um, so again, you know, my way is not perfect, and uh, other doctors right. seem to do okay with the computer. So I think it depends. It's, it's really up to the individual clinician. Do you know of any EHRs that are built f- from the ground up by and for physicians, and whether these? Are any better than the the EHRs that are built by medical administrators? Yeah, so I know uh, I, off the top of my head, I, I don't exactly know uh, the the names of there. There are some that are built ground up by physicians, uh, but I don't think they've achieved the necessary market penetration um, because when it comes to integration with you know, say like the hospital, um, mm-hmm. a lot of these integrated healthcare systems, you know, when you're inpatient in a hospital you know most hospitals aren't going to choose a a physician built uh, EMR you know they're going to choose something like epic you know they're going to choose mm-hmm. something like McKesson these huge projects and a lot of these decisions aren't in the hands of the practicing physician mm-hmm. i think that if you're a you know the a solo practitioner which is a, a fading uh, type of doctor or if you're in direct primary care or if you're outside the insurance system then yes you can use these these uh, more efficient EMRs but chances are as doctors we're working for bigger and bigger health entities uh, we're working mm. with hospitals these conglomerates and they're going to be using epic they're going to be using things that administrators pick uh, not necessarily in the best interest of physicians so even if there was a perfect emr built from the ground up by physicians whether it's implemented in whatever job that you're in is really um, difficult to do so mm. are there conspiracy theories about why the government spent like pushed everyone to just suddenly take up EMRs? Is it, was it because of big data? Can you, is there an interesting thread there? I've seen some stuff on your blog about, you know, meaningful use and things like that. No, I think it's uh, a lot of uh, lobbyists from just like any other thing in the government, the electronic medical record industry, they have powerful lobbyists. Mm. Um, I think one thing that they specifically did not do was have all these EMRs talk to one another. You know, the fact that we're forced to use them, yet they can't talk to each other. It's a complete travesty because, um, you know, I could have a patient can come to my clinic and they'll have data in my EMR and they go to a hospital across the street that's not part of my system and their EMR can't talk to mine. And that's because that interoperability wasn't part of the government incentives. And I think that all goes to to the lobbyists because if you do have interoperability, that will obviously decrease the profits of because that's not proprietary yeah. information anymore. So um, I think it's just really the influence of the EMR lobbyists that made things the way they are today. Wow, that's... Uh that's chilling. I will say, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Great question, Matt. What else you got? <laughs> we did want to talk a little bit about uh, mid, mid-level practitioners and how they're kind of being integrated in primary care. Uh, 
have you had experience working with mid-level practitioners? Are there any, are there any in your practice and what do you, how do you see their role going forward? And, and uh, full disclosure, a lot of our listeners are mid-level practitioners. Matt, you're stuttering a lot with that question. You have a hard time <laughs> asking it. I'm not, I so that's stutter. a curious question to you. When you call physician assistants and nurse practitioners, mid-level practitioners, is that, do they consider that a pejorative term? I don't, I don't know. I, they call them in where I work now. They call them advanced practice. Uh, yeah, advanced practitioners. AP, yeah, if, yeah. If you ask any PA or NP if they if they think mid level is pejorative, they're going to say yes. Because um, that is one of the more hot topic uh, issues on my site in terms of whether you should call you know mid levels. Um, you know we you know one like you said one option is advanced practice clinicians. Mm-hmm. Another said they're non-physician clinicians. You know, they're all like these semantics. <laughs> God almighty. Uh, okay, but anyways, your question is, um, have I, yes, um, in my practice, uh, we do have um, several physician assistants and nurse practitioners, and um, they are incredibly vital members of, of the healthcare team. Right. Uh, as you know, there's a primary care shortage all over the place, and uh, I know a hot topic issue is whether these um advanced practice clinician, uh, cl- clinicians can practice independently or not. And I think this is really an issue that's, that we as a physician profession brought up among ourselves because a lot of us, we are not going into primary care fields, right? Uh-huh. I think like 70% of graduating medical students go into some type of specialty field. So really, from if you look at it from a politician standpoint, you know, it, uh, of course, they're going to consider – um, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants to to fill that gap. So, you know, whether they have the same background, whether they have the same qualifications, education certainly is a separate question. But um, someone's got to fill the gap of primary care. And um, I think that we as physicians, we've kind of painted ourselves in a corner because if we aren't going to do it, who is, right? Right. Um. So w- one of the questions I have about um, advanced practice clinicians, it, one of the concerns that I have about um, practicing independently is, is it, when you look at the the clinical hands-on hours, the supervised hours that these advanced practice clinicians have when compared to, say, a family practice resident or an internal medicine resident, you're, you're talking orders of magnitude more that the resident obtained when he or she was in residency versus an advanced practice clinician. And this, to me, is is further expanded when you look at the what, what, what seems to be just an explosion of nurse practitioner programs online. And I'm, I'm a little concerned about quality control measures. What's controlling the quality of these programs that are popping up? Yeah, I think um, what you say is, is very valid. I certainly uh, agree with that. There is a big disparity when it comes to training hours. I think I wrote a post on this like a few years ago, and I think really the answer is that we need to have some type of unified certification exam. Right. So if you want to practice independently, whether you are a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, or a physician, you all if you want to practice independently, you just pass the same certification exam. Um, and if you pass that exam then you should be able to practice independently. And I think that that would solve a lot of problems if you could have some type of standardized exam that physicians and non-physicians, non-physician clinicians can can pass. And if they do pass that exam, then they should practice independently. Um, I think ideally, then, you know, I know a lot of our professional organizations, we want to practice in this team-based approach. And I think that's an ideal situation. Mm -hmm. But if you look at a lot of rural areas where there's a lot of, where there's, 
where there aren't phys- uh, primary care available, then um, sometimes there's just no choice but yeah, to right. uh, allow um, nurse practitioners and physicians to, to fill that gap, um, even despite the the lesser hours of training. Now, do, do you know, are, are most of these advanced practice clinicians, are they going to rural areas or are they going to large metropolitan areas? Um, I don't know the data off the top of my head, but my impression is that the infl- uh, the forces that kind of shape the physician workforce towards specialty, I think they have the same influences also uh, with physician assistants and nurse practitioners as well. I, I see. I, I think that's a great idea, the kind of unified exam, because I, I think one of the things that, and Paul, Paul and I, I can't remember if we've talked about this on air or off air, but it's, it's, I think we have to embrace embrace people as colleagues and and not feel threatened that they're going to take jobs from physicians. I mean, we, we will be working with these people. And, and I think the, what Stuart was bringing up, I I have that concern even about some medical schools. I know there's places where they're the, I've, I've come across medical students who have gone to schools that really have no really good infrastructure I don't know if that's the right word for training. So these people yeah. are, they're, they're just shadowing for their entire third year. They're not really being integrated as team members. And when they get to the fourth year, or when they get to residency, they're really not at the level you'd expect to some, right. to someone who spent a lot of time as a team member in a hospital. So this is not an intelligence thing we're talking about. It's just a, it's just yeah. a, like you just have to spend lots and lots of hours in the hospital doing things. And I think we need to, help figure out ways that this can be done and, and help provide training for, for, for anybody yeah. who wants it. So, some kind of a, kind of apprenticeship seems to be in, in order in the, fu- in the future in some way, shape or form. I just don't know how we'd get there. Right. Uh, we're having, we're having trouble having enough residency slots for all the grads. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's a, that's an issue in and of itself. And yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. And that's also one of the issues that I would have with a unified exam that some of these, these medical schools that are graduating these questionable students, um, they do, they look really good on paper. You know, their exam scores look great, but yet when you, when you see them interacting with patients or when you sit down with them and have them go through a differential diagnosis or just an, just a, it, going through a treatment plan with, with a patient, it's, it's as though they're not able to connect the dots, although they're able to, to do remarkably well on a multiple choice examination. Right. No, I think, uh, you're right. And I know that there are some schools that are there are, when they select medical students they're going for you know a more holistic approach you know mount mm-hmm. sinai in new york is, has the most famous pro- program in terms of um you know the background that they select students so i think that they're certainly aware of that um i wasn't there for the um i guess the practical exam for usmle so i know that they're trying to do more of a practical aspect uh, but you're right i think a, being great in a multiple choice test certainly does not necessarily translate into being becoming a great physician so um right. I don't have a good answer. Um, you know, you mentioned apprenticeship. I, I think certainly that's fine. Um, you know, but I think it, you know, it becomes a resource issue. Um, already we have a primary care shortage. And right. um, do we have enough to, to spare to, to, to further teach an apprentice when they're under the gun and have to meet RVUs and, and have to see, you know, a certain amount of patients a day? So I don't, I don't have a good answer. I think that the primary care shortage is, 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 is really tragic. Um, if you look at the ratios in other countries, it's completely reversed. Um, in the United States, it's like 70% specialist, 30% primary care, and that's ratios reversed in, mm-hmm. in the UK. And um, there's there's no good yeah. answer short of uh, some 
you know, some, some, some major approach that really reverses the incentives. And yeah. uh, we're talking about not only paying primary care more to reduce the disparity, but it also medical school debt, right? Because uh, right. a lot of these students are making decisions under specialty based on right. hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that they're graduating yeah. with. So I think it needs to be a multifactorial approach to uh, really revitalize primary care again. I think primary care in general is just exceedingly difficult. You know, when I can be an endocrinologist and just take care of one or two problems, that seems so much more attractive than being a primary care physician. And literally, you know, I, I, I've got a very sick patient population and the average number of problems, so the ACG rub for my patients, the average ACG rub is around 4.5. That is insanely high. And so when, when you look at that high of acuity and, and I'm having to manage multiple issues at once for every single one of these patients, it, it just seems incredibly more attractive to subspecialize. Yep. That, I can't argue with that. And uh, I'm sure a lot of medical students, um, they're seeing it the same way. Mm-hmm. I know that in, uh, in, let's say, the UK, there is a, they kind of control the flow into the, the subspecialties, as you were mentioning. So they, they, they will only have a certain number of GI doctors at one time. And I know that our military actually does that within their, their military health system. And I, I think people would just, just throw like riot if they tried to do that in the civilian world. But, you know, that would be one of the ways to get to, to, help with this primary care shortage because certainly if you live on a coast you're probably surrounded by specialists versus the middle middle of the country or more rural areas where you, you have more generalists there so yep. and i think that really doing something about medics, medical school debt i think that's going to re- really help things out um you know, rather if you if you graduated or if, if if medical school was subsidized by the government, like in some European countries, yeah, um, I think that's going to uh, reduce some of the incentives right. to to go into a specialist care. So, again, it's a it's a big problem, and it requires you know, multiple uh, multiple avenues of uh, of uh, remedy. Okay. So, Matt, I think we just have a oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say. I, I, I think you're you're right on the same wavelength, Stuart. I think we can start to wrap up here. Paul and Stuart, do you have any other questions for Kevin before we ask him for some take-home points for our audience that are going to just, uh, yeah. And we'll, really positive take-home points, Kevin, because I feel right. like we're kind of like, you know, uh, primary care <laughs> shortage. Uh, wah, sure. wah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll let Paul go first again. I, actually, no, I, I had no additional questions right now. This is This has been... Stuart, you're in your glory. I love to see it, so I, I'm not going to take any time away from you, buddy. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so I, I, I have one question. I hope this does not open up a can of worms. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw the script. I have this this chart in there that shows the growth of physicians versus the growth of administrators, healthcare administrators, over the past 40, 40 years. And, you know, I'm just looking at the chart, just... It just blows my mind looking at the, the proportion, uh, administrators to physicians. So how can we as physicians, what, what can we do to counterbalance the shift? This, this just exponential growth of administration. Yeah, we need to take control of our profession is as simple as that. Um, and that starts with getting our voice heard. Um, and uh, I think we have great tools to do that. Uh, obviously, I'm an expert with social media, and that's my most—that's um, uh, the platforms that I'm most familiar with. So, 
not just to use social media, but use social media as a springboard to go into mainstream media because social media is great, but your audience is re- still relatively limited and we speak to people who normally agree with us. But if we really need to change minds and if we really need to see things um, from a physician perspective, we really need to convince the public. We need patients mm-hmm. to be on our side. And in order for patients to come on our side, we need to um, be involved with mainstream media. And that means going on television, doing radio interviews, writing op-eds in a newspaper. And we really need to convince patients um, that our problems, the physician's problems, are, 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 are patient problems too. Because if doctors are burnt out, if doctors have to deal with paperwork, if doctors have to deal with clunky electronic medical re- medical records, guess what? That affects patients too. Because if patients see frustrated doctors, if you know doctors can't you know have to cut back on their hours because they have to deal with paperwork, you know that's going to affect patients. So if we could frame our problems as a way to, um, if we could frame our problems. Um, as a way to uh, uh, impact patients, um, you know, I think that's 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 going to be key in terms of uh, expanding our influence. And with uh, social media and the various tools that we have, I think we have a great opportunity to um, at least get better at that. Actually, sounds like the take-home points. Yeah, it does. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I actually have one more hand on the doorknob question. I'm holding up a doorknob right now. Okay, so. So, uh, this is actually from Twitter. Um, uh, this is a, one of our followers here. So, her question is, and this is from Lauren, her question is, what advice would you give to those of us interested in delving into medical writing, specifically for thought pieces? So, I think that um, when it comes to writing and thought pieces, um, I like the op-ed project. I think you go to opedproject.com and they'll give you some tips on terms of how to write um, pieces that can get noticed by mainstream media. I certainly recommend that. Um, I think practicing writing blog posts, I think it's a great way to hone your writing because if you want to communicate on social media, you need to know what resonates. So if you write a 500, 600 word blog post and you write in uh, really active dialogue and active phrasing and um, you, know, you, you communicate clearly, that's going to help any writing um, that you want to pursue, whether it's mainstream media writing or medical writing. So just being involved with social media, going with the op-ed project, going and using those resources there, I think that probably would be where I would start. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. That was that was quite all encompassing and a very good answer. I yeah I I I think that this was a nice really uh, Stuart. What did you write online? This was going to be a potpourri of uh, topics that we were going to be talking about tonight. That's right. Yep, Paul, is, Paul is heavily rolling his eyes. Which <laughs> no, 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 no. I so listen. I and this we can cut this out in post or, or whatever. But it's no. Nope. I think it all goes back to you know you, you mentioned burnout a couple of times, and I think. Physician advocacy is is a public health measure. So it's, I've been looking at this for a little bit, and the things that keep people in primary care, the things that keep residents going towards primary care, debt, is, I mean, plays a little bit of a role, but it's really mentors, both positive and negative. And if you see a bunch of burnout providers, you're not going to go into primary care. And this has been seen in qualitative study after qualitative study. So if, if your attendings and the people that you should be looking up to are just crushed under the burden of administration, you're not going to go to primary care. And the other things, the things like lifestyle that we think are important don't really matter as much, but if the person seems fundamentally burnt out, you're not going to emulate that person. And so I, I think the things that you're thinking about, the things that you're talking about are important, not just 
from a physician level, but really from a, a public health standpoint, because I think we, we're not going to fix primary care until we make primary care doctors happier. No, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, that's well said. I, I, I completely agree. I think that if, like you said, if, if you see a bunch of attendings who are miserable, then, you know, especially as impressionable medical students, you know, why are you going to go into that field? So I think absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah, we need we need more primary care doctors doing cool stuff like you are, and uh, maybe maybe it'll become a more of a, a, a sexy field to go into. <laughs> I did not like that at all. <laughs> okay, we'll probably end there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kevin. <laughs> no problem. Thanks a lot, guys. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, Absolutely. bringing you <laughs> bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You yep. can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll, you will get a PDF copy of our expertly done show notes with facts and figures. We're committed to, and we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic, or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. Oh, hi, Paul. <laughs> and thank you to all of our Curbsiders correspondents doing work behind the scenes on Twitter, on Facebook, making figures. You know who you are. Thank you. And good night. Test, 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 testing one, two, three. You know, you're just, you're just giving me great audio to put at the beginning or end of a show. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to mute it so you can't hear me then. <laughs>